Hello, and welcome to Telling Science Stories. Once a publishing course at Simon Fraser University, now a podcast, this show is all about what makes good science communication. From journalism to YouTube videos, I speak with experts in the field about the techniques and theories they use to tell better science stories. I'm your host, Alice Fleerackers, and this podcast was originally recorded on the unceded and traditional territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, the Salvatooth, and the Shishal nations. One more thing, Siddharth had some unexpected construction going on during the recording of this episode. We've done our best to reduce it, but you'll probably hear a bit of noise in the background. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Siddharth Gonkuria, who is a science communication practitioner and researcher working at NCBS Bangalore and also the founder of the SciComm Sci Club, a flagship initiative for engaging with the science of science communication. So basically exactly what we're studying here. Uh, he spends his time exploring the research practice continuum within science communication, contributing to mentorship, capacity building, and DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, and developing intersectional science engagement practices for the global south. That's a pretty impressive sounding bio. I don't know where you find uh, time for sleep or other parts of life <laughs> or doing interviews like this. So thanks so much for making time. It's really nice to have you. I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me for today's interview. And I'm really, really excited about this conversation. So maybe just to get started, what is inclusive science communication? Like, how would you define this term? It's very multidimensional in the way that it can include a lot of characteristics and ethos. But some of the most important ones that I would say uh, that I think are important in terms of inclusive science would be to sort of prioritize stakeholders and their motivations for engaging with us rather than scientists or science communicators single-handedly deciding that this is what we want to communicate and engage people with. It's really, really important to sort of put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're trying to engage and understand what do they need, why are they interested in engaging with you, and how can the information that you provide be actually be useful to them. So I think understanding the audience's motivations to engage with you is kind of really important. And this, of course, requires a lot of active listening. It requires you to reflect on what you're doing. It takes a lot more, much, much more effort and time to do this. But I think it's, it's worthwhile in doing this because uh, if you don't do it, it, you really can't be inclusive. This is sort of the first step towards being inclusive. If I think about the term inclusivity more literally, it could include marginalized voices. These could be practices which are lesser known or people who are not usually part of such conversations and sort of looking at context and, and situations which you really don't find a, a way into our day-to-day conversations. So, of course, that's the more literal meaning of inclusivity. But I think more importantly, it's also important to sort of engage or sort of facilitate a dialogue between people who come from different backgrounds, from different levels of expertise and different life experiences, even if there are differences of of expertise, of power, of values, of ethics. So I think before you can actually move towards inclusive cycle, facilitate conversations, which can sort of help people understand each other's point of view. So basically being a knowledge broker or sort of being a person who can help understand different communities or different groups of people's uh, point of views uh, is also very important. Of course, there are elements of social justice and decolonization. And That's a lot uh, to achieve. It sounds like a quite, you know, challenging task to try to understand what a community needs, try to, to start those conversations. How, for example, are you are you fostering that kind of inclusion in the work that you do at SciComm Sci Club? In my work with the SciComm Sci Club, I'm actually not engaging with communities on the ground directly. I'm actually engaging with the community of practitioners or of scientists as well as science communicators, both freelance and professionals. In some ways, a level meta of what 
right. we usually do as science communication practitioners yeah. i'm actually trying to engage the community of psychom practitioners with the understanding of how you can make your science communication more evidence based how can you use yeah. research in science communication and the multidisciplinary field of of science engagement psychology uh, decision making science cognition i mean there's a whole lot of things that can come into understanding how do you engage people with science so my work at the psychom psychlog is actually uh, somewhat slightly easier because i'm not really dealing with all the communities but um, in terms of how do i foster inclusion in my work i would say that i have been mentoring a lot of science communication practitioners in terms of making their practice more reflexive more evidence based and more inclusive we have had create a database of science communicators which is aggregated by their pronouns their gender identity their locations the languages that they teach in or they communicate science in the research interests that they have so by creating a database of science communicators we are actually also allowing other people to sort of engage with uh, and make their science communication more we also engaged in some policy making efforts where we have actually consulted with a broad spectrum of science engagement professionals uh, and we have tried to understand how can we make science engagement in india more inclusive so these are again not direct initiatives aimed at inclusion but they are sort of indirectly uh, helping inclusion yeah. downstream it sounds like it runs at a lot of different levels yeah. right that you can't just do a quick fix at one of these levels and expect it all to work out i know one thing that we're reading about a lot right now in the research is is this importance of moving away from top down one way communication to to bottom up participatory public engagement and dialogue maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what the research is saying about fostering multi-way communication and kind of what does that actually look like in practice it's very important to sort of engage with people not just in 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 a top down approach but also give them the agency to sort of not just decide what they want to take away from it but what does the science engagement initiative actually help them do is it for increasing their uh, their awareness about vaccines is it about convincing them to do certain kinds of things but who is setting the context for convincing them what is in it for them right so in some ways if we move towards a more participatory or bottoms up approach it's not just about letting people ask questions or you know deciding on what we want to communicate based on the people but it's also giving the agency to people to sort of change the entire setup in which they are engaging the science communication uh, activity right there is no other way that you can actually engage with the community on the ground or understand people's motivations to engage with the science and actually make science more reflexive so in some ways science communication can also be a tool to question science itself make science more democratic uh, sort of engage people in learning about the benefits of science but also questioning science and the process of science and and all the all the problems that we see downstream in terms of people not trusting science or people being skeptical of what scientists intentions are for doing certain kinds of science communication can really be rectified not when we have developed the product but sort of when we engage with them more upstream before the product is fully developed mm. the question that kind of comes up for me is like what does that actually look like in practice you know we hear this term upstream engagement but does that mean you have to go right. interview people in cafes or do surveys or or you know how do you start to have those conversations early on if i if i can answer that question in a slightly different way is that <laughs> i would say that uh, a lot of science communication research and science communication models and even the community of science communication practitioners are sort of uh, coming back towards saying that we should have community based or bottoms up or participatory 
approaches, but this is not something which is new. Uh, when we look at the history of science communication itself, uh, we often think of scientific controversies as the way that sort of pushed the field of science communication forward, right? And we think that controversies like, like the mad cow disease or the nanotechnology debate, all of these were sort of nucleating or catalyzing events in the history of science communication, how it developed. But if you look at participation, community building, dialogue, um, sort of community-centric efforts, these have been in practice for the last thousands of years. And it's just that it has not been studied because our understanding of science communication and its history is very Western and Eurocentric, right? So if you start looking at more indigenous local uh, practices in the global South, these uh, initiatives and efforts and these ethos of participation and community building have always been there. So I'll give you one short example. I don't want to take too much time. So if you look at the original practice of oral storytelling, right? Now these oral storytelling practices did not, uh, were really based in the, in the context or the surroundings that the people were living in. And they did not differentiate between the production and the sharing of knowledge. So knowledge, production and sharing were basically intertwined with each other in the sense that the storytelling and the oral aspect of, of sharing that science was as important as understanding the natural phenomena around it, right? And so when you sort of combine these practices of knowledge production and sharing, uh, it gives rise to a, a form of science engagement or science communication as we understand it right now. I mean, these people did not call it science communication, oh. but what we call a science communication is actually the oral storytelling practices in Aboriginal Australia are also a, a very old form of science communication, which really are very community centric, are very participatory. It just inverts the entire uh, understanding of what's top down or bottoms up because yeah. there is no top down or bottoms up. It's it's all inclusive and together, right? Yeah, in Canada, we're talking a lot about indigenous knowledge and one thing that has come up in the science communication literature has been like you know what what are we counting as science are we con are we considering this but then also what do we count as communication like as you were saying is oral oral storytelling or or conversations they are sort of a, a totally core form of communication i'm wondering you know i know you're based in india and i know nothing about what sort of the science communication context is like there. So maybe uh, um, you could give us a little bit of a sense of like, what is the reality like of trying to communicate science right now in India? Mm. So we have a sense of comparison. So I am someone who was trained in the UK in science communication, and I really came with this knowledge of oh, science communication models, and these are the approaches and dialogue and deliberation and participation. But when I came back to India, I actually had a lot of difficulty in sort of translating that into action or implementing all of those learnings that I'd learned. And I realized after within a few months that the context of, of engaging people with science, what I had learned in the UK was very, very uh, sort of prominent and useful and, and, and made sense in, in, in the Europe context, mm -hmm. but it didn't really translate into India very easily. And the reason for that, I realized after a little bit of introspection and study, was that, that in India, the, the social cultural context is incredibly, incredibly complicated and complex. So, so yeah. you have more than uh, 100 major languages in India, the ethnicities and the culture changes every 100 kilometers. There is a stark urban and rural divide in India. There is a lot of uh, problems with pseudoscience and, 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 and sort of misinformation that, that, that pervades in India. There is an urban and rural divide. Scientific literacy is really, really patchy. In some places, it's really high. In some places, it's really low. And science capital, by science capital, I mean the, the access to sort of ethos and practices and people and, and surroundings that really make you interested in science. That's really, really, really difficult in India because a lot of people are still struggling with basic developmental needs and right. they don't really have the luxury to sort of, you know, engage in curiosity-driven science. So they're often stuck at need-driven science, which is understanding agriculture and sanitation and health and hygiene and, and things that immediately affect their life and livelihoods. And 
it, there is a really, really strong need to sort of engage them in curiosity-driven science communication, which is to sort of engage them in the awes and the wonders of how is it that science actually pervades our life in a day-to-day -day basis, right? Mm. So there is an intersection of a lot of social cultural context, which make it incredibly difficult in India to implement any science engagement initiative because everything that you do in, in say in the place that I'm living in will be very, very different if you move just 50 kilometers north or south, right? So right. in some ways, what is really needed is an Indian way of communicating science or engaging people with science. And mm -hmm. when I say an Indian way of communicating science, what I mean is that something which is really, really embedded in the local context, which is driven by local practitioners who not only understand the local language, the local cultural practices, the local uh, sort of knowledge, lived experiences of the local context, they should also be the people who are sort of developing the science communication materials and content. So if we are going to translate content from English to say a language, say Hindi or Bengali in India, what happens is that there's a two-step translation. So first you're translating from English to Hindi, which is the language, but then you're also translating something which is scientifically jargon heavy to something which is accessible to the common public. And because there's a two-step translation, there's a lot that is lost in this translation process because what happens is that when you're communicating science, you often use analogies and metaphors and uh, local examples, which make sense in a particular culture and context. But if you're translating that into another culture and context, often when you're translating it, the, the metaphors and analogies don't really work, right? So what you, and, and this two-step translation process is incredibly complicated and it's really time consuming and it does not really give you good results it's better to produce de novo science communication content which is produced by local practitioners embedded in the local context and when they use more participatory approaches like games and exhibitions and theater so india has a really rich tradition of folk art and theater and tradition and so using these uh, performative uh, performative aspects of, of science communication would be a really really interesting way of communicating and engaging science rather than having something which is written because not a lot of people can read and write in, in villages in India, right? So you really need to understand the audience and deliver uh, and use a format and approach that really works for them. And so what kind of advice or guidance do you give when you're when you're mentoring someone to to incorporate more EDI into their science communication practice? Uh, when I do mentorship, I try not to be prescriptive or tell people what to do or what not to do. Instead, I try to use reflexive prompts where I ask them questions which force the, the practitioners to think about their practice. Who is your target audience? Or why do you think the target audience is actually interested in engaging with you? What's in it for them? How are you going to understand their context and motivations? Have you considered people who might not really be the people who are at the public facing end of the initiative of the research institution, but might actually be the cogs and wheels of the institution and might actually be a much more stronger force in changing a practice or a convention rather than someone who's just, you know, in the PR side. So it's a series of questions and, and these kind of questions when I'm mentoring people really helps not just the people I'm mentoring, but it also makes me learn a lot of things. I learned incredibly uh, a huge amount of things from the people I mentor. And I think it's more of a give and take relationship rather than me offering them advice. I learn as much as I offer them advice. I really don't have to sort of tell them after every few days that you should do this or shouldn't do that. When you give them reflexive prompts to think about, they often come up with solutions which work for them and um, uh, which are, and which are much more long-term than a short-term fix, right? They get back to me after a few months and they tell me that, oh, I thought about this and I thought this could also be a way of doing it, and which is something that I have not thought about. And I tell them, think about these questions and think about how you can solve these questions. Only you can know how to solve these questions in the context and with the audiences you work with because I have no experience working with the target audience that you're working with. I may or may not have, right? And that's how the mentorship session goes usually. What's usually... Uh 
like a good question to start with the who what how questions are usually good questions to start with because those are things that most people have usually thought about but once they have answered who is your target audience what kind of science are you trying to communicate and and what is the the level of scientific knowledge or expertise the audience has these are very easy questions to answer but once you start getting into the domain or the territory of what's in it for the audiences that's the question which usually stumps a lot of the practitioners because uh, i find it surprising that most people have not thought about it explicitly they may have implicitly but most people do not think of it from that point of view that they need to put themselves in the shoes of of the audience uh, and that really changes the the paradigm in the sense that it doesn't become a one dimensional or a one directional approach it suddenly becomes much more dialogic i mean i may not use the term dialogue i may not use fancy psychom terms you know but when i say what's in it for them why should they care why should they bother to you know come and listen to you and spend an hour of their day with you i think that really changes and it really sparks a, a sort of a, a switch in a lot of people's head and they start thinking what can i do to sort of understand and i think that that's sort of the the segue and that's like my the foot in the door that i used to sort of uh, ask the more more reflexive questions and it, the set of questions i asked towards the end are very very specific to the person i'm talking to and what they science initiative their approach their format is so it really differs and it's an open ended conversation i just have like those five or six questions that i begin with and often it just becomes a conversation and I, and we keep asking each other things and and they ask me things i ask them things so it's pretty much like what we're doing right now one thing i'm really getting is there's there's a lot of work that goes into this and a lot of reflection and, and questioning and i'm just wondering what's one of the biggest challenges we're facing as a field with respect to equity diversity inclusion issues there are so many challenges i mean it's very difficult to pinpoint one challenge there isn't enough recognition for alternative forms of knowing doing seeing what we understand by science and by science i specifically mean western science is a very eurocentric very renaissance sort of driven understanding it western science is a set of ideals norms values epistemologies ontologies whatever which uh, is is a method of understanding the world when it becomes problematic is when it sort of posits itself or it positions itself as the only way of knowing and understanding the world and i think that becomes a problem so western science is is amazing it's great it has a lot of things it really sort of erases and uh, diminishes and and sort of uh, does not allow other forms of knowing to sort of come into picture and i think that is one of the biggest challenges of, of inclusion and diversity and equity uh, so for example i i can tell you something so i have spoken about decolonization science and science communication multiple times and often times i am forced to refer two papers and abstracts and and articles which are cited in the western literature and this requirement to to refer to things that have been cited in the western literature is really 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 limiting for me because a lot of these practices especially oral storytelling practices are not referenced and uh, are cited anywhere right so how do i even include and and design an inclusive science communication pedagogy around it if i can't even sort of uh, rationalize the use of these things because they cannot be cited right so this requirement of having things cited having things to be in a certain way this is all a requirement of western science right and this really hinders with inclusion and diversity because you really can't i mean you can't develop a framework for the west and expect the east to fit into it right if you want to develop a framework for eastern science and for oriental science or whatever you call it for non western ways of knowing you really need to start from the scratch and and develop a framework that works for us you cannot really expect our culture and tradition and our ways of knowing to fit into western science and and again when i say our i don't really want to sort of 
imply a binary that us versus us uh, us versus them what i'm saying is that there is a lot of knowledge and indigenous ways of knowing and rationality and skepticism and western science do not really have to be mutually exclusive they can really be combined and sort of be uh, symbiotically sort of joined together and there are there are great examples in the global south of doing that so one example that i've also cited in my course in the lifeology course is the example of griots in western africa where uh, traditional science communicators were not able to communicate about ebola or health communication efforts around ebola and they recruited uh, griots who are basically uh, songwriters and historians and and people who travel around the around the country and they really performed a lot of folk art and song and dances and they were able to communicate a lot of health information about ebola which were much more effective which was taken up by the communities much more uh, effectively because they were based in the local cultural and context right and this is a great way of combining folk tradition with western science and it doesn't really have to be mutually exclusive so i stop with that because i can go on talking <laughs> about this this is something i'm i'm really really i feel very strongly about so yeah, yeah. um because i hate ending on a, a note of pessimism is there something about um the field of science communication with respect to edi that gives you some hope or makes you feel happy when you wake up in the morning yes absolutely i think i'm seeing a lot more science communicators using science communication as a tool for questioning science as a tool for questioning the power and hegemony of systemic issues in science and and this goes beyond just science communication it's also about asking and questioning practices in science which is about mental health which is about inclusion and diversity in the practice of science in general right there is a lot more interesting and important work coming our way and it's already happening to a large extent but i'm i'm hopeful and i i, I don't think there's anything to be scared of i think we're going in the right direction it's only a matter of time when we sort of in move towards a much more globalized and more inclusive understanding of science and science communication both so on that note i'll i'll stop that's great that's a very nice positive and uplifting note to think uh, on so thank you so much for your time and sharing yeah. your expertise and and your questions with us thank you so much for having me it was great talking to you and and finally meeting you uh, although virtually but yeah <laughs> thanks so much all right have, have a great day ahead see yeah. you